Hello, and welcome back to the Self Healer Soundboard. Every episode, we invite all of our viewers and listeners, so all of you, to send us your requests, your comments, your feedback, to let us know what it is you would like to hear discussed on these episodes and really how you're engaging with the content and what is coming up for you. So today's episode comes from a direct request from one of you viewers and listeners, and that was a request to talk about the difference between enabling versus compassion. So today we are going to break down just that and go into what enabling is, why we enable, and how we can begin to stop enabling. We actually did an entire episode on the topic of self-compassion. It is episode 45 for anyone who is interested. So today's discussion, we're going to really focus on the enabling piece. But before we get started, just so that we're all on the same page on what compassion is, compassion is, it's a feeling. Um, it's a feeling of holding space for someone else's suffering, usually coupled with a desire to help, to make them feel better, to solve the issue, to take away the problem. Um, and I think that's an important part to separate what compassion is as a feeling from what enabling is, which is an action. Um, and again, I think that can open up the discussion and really understanding oftentimes those two get connected. When we feel so badly for someone, it becomes really easy to feel compelled or inspired or want to action and to take away that pain. I love breaking the two of these down. And I also, I look at compassion as a feeling and also as a choice. And if I'm looking at the two of them, compassion is an intentional choice that comes from your heart space. Whereas enabling is a choice that really comes from, well, I'd say less a choice and more of a choice of cyclical behavior that comes from usually internally a sadness or a loneliness and emptiness, some sort of need from our childhood that we are subconsciously longing to fill. So to speak to your point, Jenna, when we're talking about enabling, um, oftentimes what we are talking about are dysfunctional cycles that for most of us originated in childhood. And when we think about enabling, um, the first thing that for me comes to mind is actually a, a people-pleasing or something otherwise known as a fawn trauma response. And where that comes from, again, is an early environment, like you were saying, where our needs weren't met, where we didn't have safety or security or a, or a consistent sense of connectedness. And often what happens is we we adapt, we modify ourselves, we begin to put other people's wants, needs, whatever it is before our own. And what happens over time is we actually learn to keep ourselves safe by doing that. If you had a parent who was unpredictable or explosive in any way, or maybe they were someone who iced when they became overwhelmed, if you could figure out you know, what might upset that parent and stay away or not bring that stress into the relationship, then chances are you increase the likelihood of never having that explosive behavior or never having that disconnection in that ever important relationship. So when we're thinking about where these patterns develop, what happens is we are reinforced, right? If I show up in service of you, if I keep you calm, if I tend to you and I avoid interruption, then I've learned in, in the deeper way that serving someone else actually does keep myself safe. And I then continue this pattern, like you're saying, of people-pleasing behaviors. And again, it's all related to that lack of trust or security or connection in our childhood. Mm -hmm. 
So we learn to enable in order to get a certain response. And the definition of enable, just so everyone is on the same page, is to give means or authority to someone or something in order to do something. And this is really relevant for me personally because I've uncomfortably been sitting with these last six months, this last year, how much I enabled my brother Jake's addiction without really wanting to like even see it or admit it. And it's very uncomfortable to sit with now because he has died. And while I am not responsible for his death, he made the choices that he made. I can absolutely sit here honestly with you and peel back now from a very objective, uncomfortable standpoint and see in even the very months and weeks and days leading up until his death where I completely let all of really my knowing or that objectivity, everything I've grown into, that consciousness, sort of threw it out the window and reverted back to these really wounded parts of me that so desperately wanted to believe the manipulation he was giving me or the lies he was giving me that, you know, I wanted to validate them. I wanted them to be truthful when he would ask for money and give me an elaborate reason or send me receipts of what he was needing it for. Deep somewhere in me, there was a knowing. I think I knew, though I was coming out of years of Jake being in recovery and being sober. So Jake in active addiction, again, was something that 100% blindsided me. And I definitely fell back into little Jenna just wanting so badly to make her brother happy and to be there to support her brother. When in reality, the greatest support and compassion that I could have given him would have been to say no and to forbid the very actions that I did, which were to grant his request to enable what he needed when that money and those choices were going straight to drugs. They ultimately were the, you know, enabled what allowed him to then buy the drugs that he chose to use that then ended his life that last time. So I, really looking at zooming out and being honest with ourselves about our own our own enabling where we've allowed ourselves to be enabled and where we've enabled others does require a lot of i think just honest courage and really a lot of compassion for self without beating myself up and making myself wrong i'm able to sit here in the discomfort of this reality now and at least share it with you all and hopefully bring awareness to these conversations and to enabling so that we can really start to become responsible for ourselves and also start to draw that line and boundary with the new awareness we have of preventing ourselves from continuing to enable those around us that we likely unconsciously have been enabling for quite some time. I appreciate you speaking to that, Jenna, as always. And, you know, also want to expand this picture for those of us out there, because I think um, oftentimes we do, when we hear the word enabling, we associate it with an addictive cycle of some sort and all the different ways that, you know, we show up what we think is of support of this person. And really we're enabling them to continue those addictive behaviors, but we can really expand this conversation because in my own past and in my own past relationships, having grown up in a family that didn't have attuned caregivers, I very much learned that fawn response, this idea that my wants and my needs have no space in this home. Um, if I were to express them, it would only stress the home out, overwhelm me even more. 
Um, so before long, I showed up in service of keeping the peace in the home. And how that translated then into my personal relationships, once I obviously moved out um, of my family's house, I had the same patterning and not with addiction like you're describing, um, with just okaying behaviors that actually now in retrospect aren't okay. Hearing from early partners, one in particular who was quite emotionally, because of her own past experience in her family, um, volatile. Um, she could be downright mean when she was emotionally activated or triggered. Um, and she would call me very mean names. And I was all often on the receiving end of her upset while we were in an active relationship. And there was a part of me that thought I was being very compassionate and holding space for these eruptions, even when she was saying really vile things to me, about me, to my face in front of friends, because what I thought I was doing was being supportive of someone who, in her own pain, was just projecting that onto me. Um, and I continue to allow that and after this relationship ended um, into several other relationships. And again, now I understand it is that's my people pleasing. There was a part of me that feared losing that safety, losing that connectedness. If I showed up and said, hey, girlfriend, right, don't don't speak to me like that. Or the next time you speak to me like that, you know, enforcing a boundary, I'm going to actually remove myself from this event, actually maybe remove myself from this relationship, right? Because when we focus on boundaries, we're focusing on what I will do different. And again, in retrospect, I understand now that I did none of that because my concern was if I brought to the table that that behavior is crossing a limit, it's violating me emotionally, it's hurting my feelings. Um, my concern of the loss of that relationship was was too great. So again, I just want to expand this conversation for all of you listening because enabling can be any dysfunctional pattern that we're participating in, in a relationship with someone else, even outside, I think, of the traditional ideas around addiction and all of the ways we can enable those behaviors too. So while we just gave you two different examples, mine pertaining around my relationship with my brother, and yes, addiction is involved, and you with this past girlfriend, you can see the same common thread. Mine, while yes, the micro is in the relationship of addiction, and there's a lot of enabling that happens when we're in relationship with people in active addiction, though that doesn't separate it from Nicole's experience that she just shared. The common thread in all of that is the fawning and the people-pleasing. The only reason that I was enabling Jake in the way that I did, and trust me, Jake is not the only person that I've enabled in some way, shape, or form. I was enabling Jake as a result of my own fawn response, my own people-pleasing, my own wounded part in this little Jenna that didn't want to say no to Jake out of fear. And that, I think, is the... I immediately want to go to say the difficult thing to swallow now when really like I can swallow it. It just, it's a very humbling realization to be really honest with myself that there was, my body just went immediately into that past wounded self and that fawning and that people pleasing. And it was so invisible to me and so strong that I was just so in it. I wanted and did completely fawn to please my brother. All I wanted to do was be able to show up for him, to give him the thing that he was requesting and wanted, when in reality, what he really needed in order to survive was the opposite. It was to be cut off in a way or to be told no. But I even give that example to say that that's what he needed in order to survive because 
It's also not my power or my right to sit here and say that Jake's life was supposed to go any other way because Jake's physical life on this earth went the way that he did. And those were his choices that allowed that to prevail. And even in the last year, so much of his life and his experience has become so much of our work and the workbook and our teaching. So I do believe it, you know, everything is how it should be and it is how it is. So I look at it with that reframe of, okay, well, how can we then pull back and learn from our past experiences with a really honest lens and a really honest filter with ourselves in all of those moments? It might not be something so severe as addiction and death. But it doesn't mean that a people-pleasing and fawning with this past girlfriend of Nicole's is any less significant than that addiction or that death, because it's the same part of us where we go and abandon our true and authentic self in order to please and what we think is meet the need of another in order to receive love. So the thing that we are seeking isn't actually authentic love and connection anyways. It's something that we are seeking to meet a need of, hey, I will shift and change into anything and become anyone as long as it means that you'll love me and hold on to me, even if that means that the behaviors and environment around me are abusive or toxic or not okay. And the really honest truth that it boils down to is in that moment when we're enabling and oftentimes we are unconscious to it, it's just our pattern. It's just how we show up in maybe all of our relationships or in this one in particular. And again, if we're really truly honest, what we're attempting to do on a subconscious level is control, right? We are attempting to predict the outcome, which is if I show up in service of this person, exactly as I always have, I can pretty much bet on what's going to happen next because it's happened for however many decades we've been repeating this pattern with this person. And the unknown, when we're talking about not enabling those dysfunctional patterns, what we're really stepping into now with someone else that we probably love very deeply and care for very deeply is the unknown, is not necessarily having the control over that person because we don't know what comes next. We only know what comes next if we do or don't do whatever is on the table. We don't know what happens when we stop controlling. And that's why a lot of us, it's really hard to be that honest. It's hard to step back and be like, you know what? If I stop controlling you, I don't know what you will do next. And that's really scary. Again, especially if I love you and care for you, we can continue to keep ourselves blind to all of this because again, there's familiarity in that pattern. But somewhere down the line and where this happened for me was many relationships past that one I was just sharing with you where I was so angry, not at myself or doing myself a disservice for betraying my own limits this whole time, I was so mad at all these terrible partners I kept picking that couldn't meet my needs. And that same pattern is going to happen even if we still are in active relationship with that one human, if we continue to overstep our boundaries in service of them. Somewhere down the line, we're going to be so mad at them when really, again, it was us participating, not seeing, not being honest, not being able to pull back and really breathe through that difficult truth that I even watched you work through here, which is I'm really trying to control because I'm so afraid of what's going to happen if I don't. I was 100% trying to control and I 100% wanted to control the outcome of Jake not dying. Um, Even as you're talking, I can like feel my lips quivering. So yesterday in New York, there was a, um, in Saratoga in a recovery overdose awareness vigil 
that has been going on for a number of years now. Jake is actually the one who started it. And they, the people who are running it now asked me to speak at it or write something to be spoken. And while it was an incredible opportunity, I really couldn't bring who I couldn't bring myself to do it because this day last year, I knew it was that overdose awareness day. And I so desperately wanted to fly back to New York and be with Jake because I knew that he was just sort of slipping and losing a grip and going through a lot of shifts and changes. And I made the choice not to go because I also wasn't in a state mentally or emotionally to go there and take care of my own well-being. So for me, that was one of those tough boundaries where I chose to put myself first. Well, two weeks after this overdose awareness day last year, Jake overdosed for the first time in, I don't know, seven years. And I got a call from my twin that said, you know, Jake's in the hospital. He overdosed. And I was completely blindsided and 100% then wanted to control what happened after that. I was Flew to New York two weeks after that in October, which had already been planned. And Nicole and Molly got to meet Jake and my twin and my mother, which is really beautiful. And then I flew back here and immediately while I'm on the plane, I get an email and messages from Jake asking to borrow all of this money for this camera that he needs to rent in order to take these professional photos that he'd been hired for. So I'm like, oh, great. I'm proud of you. You're an incredible photographer. Meanwhile, Jake's beloved camera had already been sold off for drugs. And I just buried that in the back of my mind and didn't want to really acknowledge that. And I then sent him the money thinking that I could control some outcome of, oh, he's really going to use this for photography. He's really going to follow through with this. This is great. Jake's going to get clean and, you know, be sober again. Let's just ignore that he overdosed two weeks ago and that all of this is happening. And I share this with you because it's, it happens very quickly and it happens very subconsciously where your desire to control, I think a lot of us don't want to admit that we are control freaks. We're very controlling. It makes a lot of sense and it's very common and very normal for you to be controlling because your body, your soul is literally trying to make a predictable outcome so that you can survive. If you know what's going to happen, then you can organize everything, your body, this is what it's telling itself, to prepare itself for survival through that. When we step into that unknown that you're speaking of, Nicole, it's like haywire. We don't know what's going on. So that hardness of the unknown, that difficulty that we all feel is just newness to our body. Our body does not know. Our heart and our mind does not know what's going to happen. So it kind of goes into this overdrive that physically feels can feel sickening. It can feel freezing and like your body is just full of tension. It gets very scared. It gets very rigid. So I would suggest maybe all of us humbling ourselves to some degree that we all have an innate programming to control. And when we can accept that about ourselves and just become aware that that's also part of a human condition and understand where it comes from, it allows a lot more opportunity for that self-love and that self-compassion to come in, which is absolutely crucial and foundational 
in you even being able to peel back and look at all of these layers of you. If you don't allow yourself that compassion and that love, you're going to see all of these things and see all of this powerful new awareness, and you're going to beat yourself up and degrade yourself and create more of the same, and then wonder why you're still sitting here stuck when you're doing the work and you're listening to the podcast, but nothing's changing. I appreciate um, everything there that you were just sharing, Jenna. And I also want to speak to everyone out there who might be hearing, you know, this conversation and us use these different examples and wondering, well, how do I know the difference between enabling and actually supporting? So in that scenario with your brother, I can imagine some listeners being like, well, what if it wasn't <laughs> right going to go to to drugs or to substances or whatever, those past behaviors, whatever they might be? And what if this was the time and opportunity where this person was wanting to show up anew? And here's where we speak the truth that I think we speak every week on this podcast, which is it's your own individual journey. We can't sit here and say X, Y, or Z equals enabling and X, Y, or Z equals um, support in this moment because it's really individual. And what you were sharing got me thinking about this, which is how important reconnecting with your body is. So your body can help you determine where those limits are for you. Determine if this is the moment where you are if you're honest, enabling those past choices, or if this is the moment, right, where you are stepping into maybe with someone else, a new possibility or a new future. And what I'm obviously referencing is reconnecting with that inner knowing or that intuition, which actually applies to this full conversation. When we started this, this journey here today on this episode, talking about compassion and the difference between enabling, to be compassionate, we have to be truly connected to our heart. To be connected to our heart, our nervous system needs to be signaling our whole body that it's safe, that it's in that parasympathetic or that rest and digest, that safe and social, that peaceful place so that we can hear that intuition. And again, I'm speaking that because when we're talking about a trauma response and not feeling safe and secure and being afraid right, to share our true feelings with someone else, chances are you're not in that safe space. So compassion right? Being authentic, actually showing up in support of another for another and not ourself isn't actually possible. Knowing the difference between your intuition saying, you know what, this is safe, Nicole, for us to go into the unknown right here, right now. And you know what, Nicole, this is more of that past. To be able to even hear those pings, we need to be safely in our bodies. And then of course, that begins the journey that we talk about because reconnecting with our body isn't the light switch. We don't hear a podcast like that and become completely connected to our intuition and our knowing and know what's right for us in that next moment. It is the journey, though, and our body is definitely part of this conversation around even enabling. There is more wisdom in your body than in your deepest philosophy. That is a quote by Nietzsche. I've said it on so many episodes. I've also been saying it wrong. I keep saying than in your greatest philosophy, and it is there is more wisdom in your body than in your deepest philosophy. And the body piece is 100% essential as you were, as we're having this conversation about going into that unknown and that difficultness, that difficult that you're feeling is your body in an unknown space. Your nervous system is not in a space of safety. It's not in a space of regulation. So it's our work to 
actually do the work and literally practice and train our bodies that they are safe in order to be able to hear those pings of our intuition and get in touch with or connected back to ourselves, we have to create the physical environment. So if we have a dysregulated nervous system, I don't have access to that intuition, that inner knowing, cultivating that compassion. So how do we then begin regulating our nervous system? Each one of our, you could almost boil down every single episode literally to this. It goes back to the body. I say the Nietzsche quote, and it's about regulating the nervous system. You have to be in a state of homeostasis, create that safety in your physical body, in your physical nervous system to be able to access all of these points that we're speaking of. So things literally like getting adequate sleep, getting sunlight, eating the best whole foods around you that you have access to, spending time in silence, spending time in nature, journaling, spending time reflecting, taking cold showers, putting your hands in an ice bath, even in learning to use your breath to bring yourself back into a regulated calm space while your physical self is shocked with that cold putting one hand on your belly, one hand on your heart, and just taking three deep inhales in through your nose, out through your mouth. There are hundreds of ways that we can begin to drop into our body and create that safety. And it can be something as simple as going outside and staring at a flower or spending 10 minutes under the sunshine. So assuming that we are making those small daily promises and keeping them to create this health in our nervous system. That's really what you're sharing here. That translates to the ability to regulate our emotions so that we can go from stressed out to that peaceful space and hear that intuition so that we can know where our limits are or begin to know where our limits are or what our wants and needs are in any relationship. Because a lot of us, especially if we're disconnected from our body, probably don't yet even know where our limits are or what we want and what we need in our relationships. And then we could begin to observe ourselves, right? If we're talking about this pattern of enabling dysfunctional habits, which are going to look different in our relationships for each of us, then we can go witness ourselves in our relationships, right? Look for how present are our needs. Do I express what I need, what I want? Do I say my thoughts? Do I share my feelings? Um, can I be unavailable? Do I feel like there's a reciprocity or am I always feeling like I'm giving, I'm doing, I'm always the listening ear? Um, do I feel like I'm always responsible anytime there's an issue? It's me who's saying I'm sorry. Again, there's even reciprocity in conflict. It's about both people in those moments acknowledging their different perspectives, their different issues. But a lot of us, again, who have the tendency to enable fall into that. I'm always saying I'm sorry. Again, how much energy do you feel like you have for yourself? Or are you giving all of your energy into all of your relationships? And questions can continue, but I just wanted to give you a place to start, right? Observing yourself in relationship, how much space is there for you? How much security is there for you? And can you ultimately be who you are? Or are you possibly participating in keeping patterns that aren't as as adaptive for you. And remember to keep the spotlight on you. We haven't mentioned it specifically in this episode that what I keep hearing in my mind is the savior complex, where while it may feel or occur like it comes from this well-intentioned loving space that we want to save another, 
When we go into a default of enabling another or thinking we need to fix or save another, what we're really honestly doing is saying they're unable, they're not capable, they're really small. And when you look at us all as one universal being in this collective consciousness, which we are, then you actually see our connection. You see the power that I have to heal my own self and create my own life that Nicole has to heal her own self and create her own life. Well, that same power is also within you. That's the work that we're all doing. And the moment, and I did this, of, of course I did this. When I first started healing and like awakening to myself years ago, the first thing I did was run home to my family. I wanted to fix and change them. I wanted everyone around me to have what I was having. And I wanted them to get there when I wanted them to get there. I wanted to control it. Do you see how, how easy this happens? And that came from a good place, right? I was awakening to all of this profound awareness that was really powerful and really empowering. Why wouldn't I want that for everyone around me? Well, everyone around me has their own journey. They have just as much miraculous power in them that I do. In fact, it's the same power and it's their journey to mold and shape that and make the choice of what their life is going to look like and where that's going to go. So I'd also just keep an awareness hovering where you might be defaulting into this savior complex or believing that it is your role. I truly believed and had a conditioned belief that it was my role to save my family. I made a commitment as a little girl that someday I'm running full speed away from really the shit show, creating my own life, and I'm going to come back and save everyone. I'm going to pay for everyone's houses. I'm going to bestow this whole grand life on them, and I'm going to build it. That, while it may sound you know, really kind in some ways, was so invalidating of their ability and capability. And also then gave them sort of a coast. It gives them a crutch where for me, I've created the life that I have and whatever I'll create in the future because of my rock bottoms, because of the darkness that I've seen, I've been able to then break open, choose to raise my awareness, learn from it and create something new. When you go to save someone else or fix someone else, you take away that experience and that ability for that person to fall on their face and crack open. And those are the most pivotal and empowering moments of our lives. So be gentle with yourself as you just keep that hovering. And also that, that goes with the control. Yes, I can proudly say my name is Jenna. I'm a control freak and I'm a recovering person with a savior complex. I'm giggling um, because Jenna, you often... Um, I acknowledge you often. I will do so here as being my greatest teacher. You were the first person that spoke um, what you just shared with everyone listening, which is how limiting we are when we don't hold that bigger version or that expanded version or that future version of other people. And you spoke that to me and, and knowing that I am someone who's similar to you shows up in service of other people. Um, it really sat, you know, kind of in, in my mind and it gave me the opportunity then to remind myself because now we have to have the very honest conversation of how hard it is now <laughs> to set boundaries, to define new limits, to maybe hear back from the loved one when we say no to their request that we are being selfish or that something possibly bad might happen. Um, again, that might even come with an active threat. I mean, I'm just 
giving really honest lived experience scenarios of the kickback that we could receive from that other person when we don't show up, or maybe even from the entire family who might be showing up in a similar enabling way and showing up with new limits, saying no, actually holding and standing in the space for someone else to make a choice in service of that expanded future self is painful. It's it's heartbreaking at times. Um, And for me, it gave me the opportunity to consciously remind myself of this until I got to the place where I got to live the experience. Or again, one of your great teachings is be my own proof, which meant learning how to say no. I mean, for me, one of the most difficult decisions of my life was several years ago, making the decision to go no contact with my family, knowing that my mom and dad, my mom, who though is you know, had a history of chronic illness, was getting up in age, not knowing how many years I would have left with her and making that choice to create that separation without knowing, talk about uncertainty of if I would even have the opportunity for that reconnection, if she would even physically be here. And I had about another 18 months left with her um, once we reconnected. So again, when we make that choice for ourselves, it's a difficult choice. It's a painful choice. Um, it didn't take away how bad it felt, but reminding myself of why I'm doing it for my own needs so that I can show up more compassionately in my relationships and also for them so that they can have an opportunity to empower themselves in choice. And again, doesn't take away the difficulty, doesn't take away the reaction that we might be faced with, though it is a good reminder because now, several years later, I've lived that experience of having put up boundaries, of feeling so much more connected and alive within my own heart so that when I do show up now in my relationships, I'm actually of service of someone else. I'm not in the selfishness of that survival cycle that often comes with that enabling pattern because it's based in fear. And you can be of service to someone else because you're first in service of yourself, which we cannot speak enough. This will always, every time, come back to self. And as I mentioned earlier, being a part of this universal collective consciousness, well, that means that, yes, yourself, your being is connected to everyone else. So it is your work to do the work of self. It is the other person's work to do the work of the other person. And there's so much power and wisdom and opportunity to create new when we really pull back and just root ourselves in this, for many of us, new belief and understanding that I am only responsible for me. I am only in control of me. Someone else's life and journey and outcome is theirs to choose. As much as we might go back and forth with ourselves about it, try it on. Just like when you give yourself a new affirmation that you don't believe at first because you've been so conditioned in something else, it's the same thing. Try this one on as an affirmation. I am only responsible for me. I can only control the outcome for me. It will take time, yes, though with consistency and repetition, you will quite literally create a new neural pathway in your mind where your immediate response then is going to be deeply ingrained in this new empowering belief that I can only control me. And for everyone out there listening who knows how difficult it is to even access this logical part of our mind, um, to remind us of these beautiful reminders, really suggesting 
you know, oftentimes the best thing we can gift ourselves with is space, time away. If you do feel yourself getting to that place of saying and doing, or even if you hear that initial ping of the text message that you know is from the person with the request, pause, right? We don't have to respond immediately. The other person might feel like they want or deserve, or maybe in the past you've given an immediate response. The biggest gift you can give yourself in that moment sometimes is that distance, is the space. Um, Because if we don't, before we know it, we're hitting send, we're picking up the phone call, we're saying yes to the request. We still might do that after we take the space, of course, because it's difficult to make new choices, but we're going to give ourselves the best opportunity to remember this conversation, to remember your beautiful words of wisdom, Jenna, and that amazing affirmation of I'm only responsible for me. Um, So breaking the habit of immediacy, um, especially if you have that one relationship where you know this conversation is going to apply, put that relationship on alert, which just means when you get contact, giving yourself just a moment, taking a step away, checking in with yourself before you go to respond, because that moment might be the difference between that older pattern of enabling and a new choice. And I also want to, before we end, also just acknowledge that relationships with our children are still relationships. We might be the parent who's people-pleasing even our child. This is, of course, outside of their, their needs, their basic emotional needs, their basic physical needs. There might be, if we're being honest, you know, a lot of you listening who don't want to be the bad parent, who don't want to set a limit, um, or whatever it may or may not be, we can still show up people-pleasing, thinking that we're putting our child's best interest you know, at mind, and in reality, again, we're not saying no because we're afraid. We're afraid of our child, right? Not loving us or not being connected to us. So another hard conversation and truth, and I just thought to apply that here, is also to acknowledge the different ways that we can be people-pleasing with our children. I'm sure a lot of you adults listening might be even thinking back to ways that maybe you even saw your caregivers, people please you. And maybe on the other end of it, you are someone in your life who is enabled, who you know knows how to get that enabling pattern continued in your relationships. And again, that's a, the other side of this enabling conversation is seeing all the ways that we're allowing ourselves to be enabled in patterns that don't serve us and including our children. We might be fawning even with our children. So a lot to think about. Um, I'm hoping that this conversation, especially those of you out there who requested it, um, and on that note, we are always listening, whether it's on this YouTube channel, if you're listening on our YouTube, um, across platforms, on our Instagram account, leaving us comments, leaving us suggestions, leaving us topics of interest. Um, We love hearing from you, and we look forward to continuing this conversation with you all during next episode.